Hey, all. Welcome to Ground Game Workshops. Today we're here with uh, Ace Catano. How you doing? Pretty good. So last time we were here, we were talking about uh, protests and what it takes to throw a protest and stage a protest. Today we're going to talk about the flip side. So a bunch of people I disagree with have gotten a permit to have a protest at a park and say that they're in favor or against something that I'm either against or in favor of. And me and my friends are going to go down to City Hall and get ourselves a counter protest permit. Sometimes that can happen, sometimes it can't. Really? There are only so many uh, permits that are available for a given area at a given time. Uh, I know one issue that's going to be coming up in the next year is that that some of the big marches have certain permits for certain parts of downtown and not other parts of downtown. So you can wind up in a situation where you could get a permit to have your own protest to street over, or you might be in a position where they have that protest, they're sitting on it, they've, they've got the permit, and you can't get another permit. And so even if I have a counter-protest permit, I can't have a counter-protest permit for the same area of land, right? Like if they have Park A, I can't also get a permit to protest there at the same time. The permit is issued for a date and time and location, and that is the permit for that date and time and location. If there's something else happening at that date and time and location, the city's going to say, hey, it's taken. Huh. And so so the city's always going to defer to the people who have the permit, right? Like. can my counter-protest count on any protection from the, the authorities or any sort of like help from the authorities, or how would they treat us? Well, structurally, uh, if somebody has a permit, the, that permit is going to, that protest is going to go through, that use is going to go through. Uh, so if you are counter-protesting or you are doing something to uh, challenge or interfere with something that's an established event, uh, you can expect that the, the way that they're setting things up is going to be focused on keeping you away from that. Uh, and it is going to defer to the operation of that protest rather than something that might be unpermitted. So for, uh, for a real-world example, uh, looking back at Charlottesville, uh, when the uh, counter-protesters lined up blocking entrance to Emancipation Park, right. they could technically be subject to police action for that protest action, right? R- right. The, the, the Charlottesville created a really uh, awful situation in part because the city was put in the position— of having to honor a um, a right of way for the neo Nazis, uh, and not having the ability to directly interfere with that, so it, in in that case, the city couldn't you know couldn't stop them from doing that. They uh, a private group couldn't stop them from doing that without potentially uh, seeing a police response. Now, it, it, is it normal behavior for what we saw in Charlottesville for the physical violence visited by the protesters on the counter-protest? Like, the protest eventually got into Emancipation Park. They physically had to remove counter-protesters to get into the entrance of the park. Is that acceptable, allowable, normal in these circumstances? Well, I mean, that's a, a, a shocking and extreme situation, what happened there. And you wouldn't normally have those sort of levels of, uh, levels of violence. And in Charlottesville, you had the particular... Uh, the particular fact that the police were cooperating with the neo-Nazis beyond simply honoring the terms of the permit, but really going out of their way to avoid um, interfering with the violence that was going on. Like There there was an uh, understanding by the police that there was going to be violence and they were letting it happen, which is something we have to think about when we're looking at uh, protest and counter-protest going forward. We can't count on uh, the police or any uh, system of authority to protect us if we're challenging uh, racists, if we're challenging the alt-right. And and uh, to bring up another concrete example, so we went down to uh, Laguna Beach a couple of months ago to protest the sort of America First crowd that showed up there, and I noticed 
of the, you know, two dozen horse police officers, it seemed like most of them were pointed towards the counter-protesters. They were all pointed towards the counter-protesters. I mean, when you saw there, uh, you had a comparatively small number of white supremacist protesters uh, who had their standard permit and their standard event, and you had an absurd number of counter-protesters. Uh, you you were you were there. You remember how the police lined up, and they were entirely facing the counter protest. They were using their force to uh, n- not just separate the groups, but it was de- focused on the counter protesters and suppressing the activity of the counter protesters. There weren't horse cops pointing horse cops. I imagine a horse that is also a police officer. Um, we, we we don't have the the uh, oh shoot I forget what you call Bojack it. horse cop. Yeah, no, or the uh, the Greek ones. What the hell do you call those? Not the centaurs. Uh, centaurs. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. didn't have centaur cops. It was just you know it was a uh, it was an animal sitting on top of a horse and a heavily armed <laughs> animal sitting on top of a horse. Uh, but I remember at one point I went to throw out a sandwich and there just happened to be a bin that was sitting on the sand right next to a cop and I went to throw the sandwich out and the cop nearly brained me with his his like little kendo boken thing that he carries uh, until I pointed out sandwich trash and throwing it out. Uh, but they seemed to at one point be making... <laughs> no, it was really weird. Like the cop looked at me like I'm going to break your head open. I was like, I'm trying to not litter. And they were always like... Uh, maybe and then like didn't hit me and I immediately moved away but they were trying That's to keep extremely people strange. It, it was they were trying to keep people off of the sand because they realized people were spilling out of the park onto the sand uh, to like not really get into fisticuffs but get in each other's faces and the cops at one point eventually came and split the sand and stopped everyone from going right. but it took a while and they waited until after most of the the uh, talking back and forth and yelling and like our side physically de-escalated several fights that I saw and once those fights were de-escalated the cops were "Eh, I guess we ought to go keep the peace but that seems like their general way of doing this is they're not there necessarily to stop the conflict between the two groups they're more just there to contain it and stop it from really spilling out into the larger community it it really depends on the particular uh, the particular space you're in and the particular sort of protest you have going on that's going to just determine a lot of it I mean we uh, we've had lots of protests that have gone off extremely, uh, extremely well without any sort of interference or issues or anything like that. Uh, and it often has to do with what's being protested and where. And so one thing is just that the specific protests are going to face a greater degree of police repression. A Black Lives Matter protest is going to see uh, police repression in a way that a anti-Trump protest is not necessarily going to, or a women's march protest, you know? Like, if the, the number, if the crowd you had at the women's march had turned out for Black Lives Matter, you would have seen an entirely different, uh, different set of behaviors on the part of the police. Yeah, and in, in a lot of the Black, Ma- uh, Black Lives Matter, sorry, protests, and I'm thinking specifically about the action that happened in Beverly Hills, uh, the police almost act as kind of counter-protesters themselves. Like, they don't see that type of protest is legitimate or protected or privileged speech the way that they see the permitted protests and stuff happening. And it, it seems that applies to a lot of these counter-protests as right. well. You, you, that's definitely true. If something is not going through the standard approval of, of permits uh, function, essentially, if it hasn't been uh, a demonstration that's cleared with the city, then the police function as suppressors of that speech. And they will attempt to uh, stop that speech from occurring. Hmm. Uh, and so the the last time we talked a little bit about sort of the liabilities that groups or individuals might onboard by getting the permits, because somebody has to sign on that, somebody has to be legally responsible for that to go through the, the city and everything, uh, with counter-protests that aren't permitted and such, 
what kind of things are you looking at? Like if you and 10 buddies put together a Facebook group and show up and yell at people who are protesting, um, what kind of liability are you onboarding there? Well, I mean, the main thing you're looking at in terms of counter-protesting or showing up to oppose, like oppose the alt-right Patriots prayer bullshit. Uh, if If you're showing up to oppose that, the thing you have to keep an eye out for is that if you are not engaged in permitted protest activity, uh, your attempts to interfere with the permitted protest, no matter how vile it is, uh, are more likely to meet with uh, state repression and state violence. Uh, you have to be looking out for the cops in a way that you might not have to if you had a permit, um, because uh, you are engaged in speech activity that is outside the auspices of the of the the permitting structure, the state power. So the main thing to be looking out for is the police and how they function relative to uh, relative to your counter protest, especially given that you if you're in areas that are high traffic or so forth, if the th- if things are interfering with the flow of traffic or things are interf- interfering with uh, private property in some way, uh, the police will take that side. Mm-hmm. And this this seems to tie directly into the the J twenty. Um, the first uh, six verdicts came down, and all defendants were found not guilty. But there's still 180 people in the hopper, all facing multiple felony level charges. I would have loved to see the the expression on the face of that U.S. attorney as they slowly read out 42 not guilty verdicts. I mean, I've sat in court while the they read out you know two or three to the DA, and you can see them all like shrivel up a little. Uh, I imagine that must have been a real experience. Well, I, I think more getting, you know, chided by the judge in the middle of your closing statement saying reasonable doubt doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. And the judge being like, stop. It matters a lot, jury. Reasonable <laughs> doubt matters a lot. Don't listen to the government employee who's trying to send these people. And the judge was pretty pro-prosecution. So Right. The judge was I, I saw the transcript. The judge was very on point on that because that's something that, you know, the, the defense didn't even have to object. That's something that obviously would be cause for an objection and something that. Uh, if allowed to go uncorrected by the judge, would have been a potential basis for overturning any any verdict. But we can see the the J twenty action that led to these arrests. That was unpermitted. Uh, there's really no way to get yourself a permit for a protest in D.C. on inauguration day. They very much don't <laughs> like that. I was I was there for George W. Bush's first inauguration, and I ended up with a group of anarchists and. Uh, I just sort of spontaneously fell into a group that smashed through a Secret Service checkpoint. Uh, their security back then was way different than it is now. The statute of limitations has expired, of course. Yes. So we're all right. Yeah. Um, also, I didn't touch anything. I just ran through. Uh, the only the only thing <laughs> they'll that, try anyhow. Yeah. Though. That's what we've the, seen. The only thing that got protected by Secret Service was they had like a Mormon family van, like one of those gigantic conversion vans that they all came around because that was their intelligence unit, and all the other cop cars on that street got smashed, and it was kind of interesting to see how they you know were like okay protect that band but not the rest of it this time they have a lot more uh intelligence and signal intelligence and discord servers and a whole bunch more places to like figure out what's going on beforehand so does that matter that the police might see a protest developing and decide we're going to arrest everyone before the protest even starts like they did in dc or yeah they they'll, they'll, they'll do that they'll arrest people before it starts or they'll target people before an action I know that there have been a number of instances where people have been arrested or harassed by the police before an action even starts, just on the off chance that they're going to be involved in that organizing. So you have you have even fewer rights than than you might normally in these kinds of situations. Uh, even if you haven't engaged in something that's destructive, even if you haven't even engaged in the type of speech you're trying to engage in, you could be targeted by the authorities 
just out of fear you'll create trouble or because they're trying to chill that speech? Both. Uh, one should keep in mind, I guess, uh, that the sorts of, you know, the sort of permit that they're going to issue is not necessarily going to be the sort of thing that you would even want. Uh, if you'd gotten a permit for a protest on Inauguration Day, that would be all well and good. You'd be in a little free speech zone miles from anything that you wanted to uh, actually protest, right? Part of the, the permitting process also can serve to uh, neuter a protest by making it, like taking it outside of the realm of actually disruptive mm. and putting it in the space where the police and the people in power are fine with it, right? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so uh, when you're in, engaged in like a, a non-permitted protest activity, of course you're going to be in a position where the police are going to be uh, coming down on you more aggressively, and it doesn't really have to do with whether you're doing something illegal or not, or whether you're, uh, you know, whether you're breaking something or whether you're engaged in speech or anything so, like that. So nothing like community standards applies to like community protests. If I can, you know, could prove like through polling that 60% of the people in my town agree with me versus the people who came to protest, that doesn't matter to the authorities. It's really their call on whether or not they want to allow that stuff to happen. Yeah, I mean, with a, with a lot of these things, the actual law doesn't really matter that much in terms of what goes on on the ground. The police don't arrest people because there are violations of the law happening. They arrest people because they are perceiving some sort of threat to public order and acting to suppress that. Whether or not that arrest gets upheld in court is not their concern or business. Mm -hmm. By the time that one, th one thing people forget about is that the police and the prosecution are two distinct processes. So the police are acting to maintain and restore like whatever order, quote unquote, uh, they're accustomed to. Whether or not it's a legal arrest or a something that can uh, actually amount to a criminal charge or be upheld in court is the business of the prosecution. And that is an entirely separate thing. Lots of protest arrests are never prosecuted because they don't actually involve the commission of a crime. What they do involve is something that creates enough of an excuse for the police to kettle people, to round people up, and to get them off the street, disrupting the ability of the protest to go forward. So let's let's talk a little bit about tactics here, since we, we know that you know if you're having a large counter-protest, you're probably going to see police tactics of various flavors. So you just mentioned kettling, and kettling is sort of semi-legal. There have been, even in D.C., a lot of lawsuits against mass arrests and stuff like that, but they still keep happening. So what are the common tactics the police use in these situations? Well, I mean, kettling is a very common one. You know, it involves encircling and potentially doing a mass arrest of a large number of people, but primarily encircling, keeping a group of protesters hemmed in by police on all sides so that they can't continue to protest, so that they can't uh, get out. And also, it does have the effect of uh, escalating potential violence, creating an excuse for mass arrests or police violence. Because people in that situation will kind of have their fight-or-flight instincts kick in. People don't like being stopped from where they're going, physically impeded. Like, it, it, it pretty much plays on a lot of psychological cues that could lead to worse outcomes. Right. It's a, it's a high-stress uh, situation. And that's another thing you have to watch out for in when you're protesting, when you're dealing with police, is police escalation. Uh, people will, like, police will find ways to bump people, put hands on people, uh, like confront people in a aggressive way that is not, uh, that, that is intended to create escalation and an excuse for, 
uh, an arrest or an excuse for an escalation in police violence. Uh, and and uh, before we move on, so the the deployment of chemical weapons, mace, CS gas, uh, tear gas, all that kind of stuff, um, is that something that police are looking to deploy? Do they feel bad when they have deployed it? Like how, what can you be expecting in terms of actual physical resistance? Um, you know, the the impression I get is that the those sort of like mass gas things are not people's ideal or you know not the police's ideal because it is a large scale thing that can open them up to liability can also uh can also like literally blow back in their faces um but the the you know the primary goal of the police in any sort of in these sort of situations is going to be to disrupt the protest to uh, stop it from occurring to disperse it and so you know they are looking for excuses to escalate in a in an unpermitted confrontational situation we're not talking about something like the women's march where they got a permit and everybody's parading and it's all like waving their flags and stuff there were two million people downtown it was shoulder to shoulder even if you wanted to start trouble you couldn't you couldn't physically move like it just the there was so much so many people there that i i don't think you could have really effectively done too much just by the physics of the situation yeah i mean that the some things if it's at a certain scale it becomes impossible to police that's why those things are can be valuable you know in south korea recently they threw their leader out of office through a series of extremely massive protests and south koreans are really good at massive protests and they're very accustomed to a level of police violence that even goes beyond what we've what we see in response to protests in america in recent years like in the in the sense that um, there's a tactical procedure in south korean protests that involves um, establishing very discreet ranks of people with the ex- expectation that those people will be beaten and arrested uh, so that a speaker can continue speaking, mm-hmm. things like that, like physically creating a barrier to allow the speaker to continue operating. Well, and I think we've also done a really good job of erasing kind of the more radical histories in South Korea and Japan, both of which were occupied by the, the U.S. military, essentially, uh, after World War II, um, and then the Korean War, obviously, in Korea, but where you had very radical leftist elements that staged big, huge protests and literally almost brought the Japanese government to its knees a couple of times. The student protests in the 70s were a nation-rocking event, but those have since kind of been forgotten. Yeah, and you have a a strong history of sort of anti-imperialist thought in both both countries. I mean, like Nassai, Gangnam style. In in around like 2003, 2004, he recorded like extremely angry anti-america anti-imperialism song with like 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 a rap rock song it, it's kind of wild if you find it i mean even gangnam style is kind of a send up on their version of beverly hills which yeah. I, I always found to be kind of funny but uh to move on to another topic uh <laughs> sorry back to, to tactics and stuff uh something we're seeing a little bit more of i feel like it's made a resurgence uh is the black block tactics and i've seen this a couple times here in la uh really to no effect it was more uh, younger, like, college-age kids kind of cosplaying revolutionary, which, you know, like, more power to you. Um, but, like, when they showed up at the Google protest and were kind of, like, completely out of their element and also standing in 90-degree heat in, like, full sort of combat-ish gear, uh, those tactics are atta- attracting a lot more attention and stuff but also bring 
a lot of liabilities for uh, the people involved in those and the other people who may yeah. not be doing the black block thing. What can you tell me about how people should look at that or what they should have in mind when they're considering those tactics? Well, uh, well, the black block is a very useful tactic if people are expecting significant uh, violence or conflict. I mean, it is powerful because it allows people to disappear back into a crowd. It allows people to be like liberated from the police and disappeared back into the crowd. Uh, it prevents people from being identified. The problem is you can't just black up for anything. I mean, like I've seen some of the, some protests where people show up like blocked up for, you know, nothing. And there are eight of them and there are eight dudes in, in black in a, in a sea of people dressed normally. And that has, that is contrary to the purpose of a black block because you've made yourself more obvious and you can't hide. <laughs> So, so people do need, and there was that guy downtown recently during the tax scam march who had like, yeah, that, no, there was a couple of them. There was that guy with this hat that is like, had like the ear beret. flaps and like the, a like communism symbol on the, or like an anarcho-syndicalist symbol directly in the middle of his hat. And I was just like, where did you get that? Where did you, did you order that from? Like, is there an Antifa store somewhere that like, you know, you just. <laughs> you can just find that thing on Etsy or something. Like, what's going on here? Oh my god! Well, there was that jacket, the Antifa jacket. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's gonna be high fashion. Um, but uh, uh radical chic. Yeah, yeah. That the 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 so the black block as a tactic is is very potentially useful, but also you have to think of it as something that um is used in high stress situations rather than something that can be deployed in like a totally peaceful protest. You have to be in if you're if you're going into that sort of situation like that, you can make yourself a target for police uh, repression, even in situations where there wouldn't otherwise be well, know, the same sort of threat. And I can also say, like, when I when we were doing the uh, Google March, uh, which ter- we were going to counter protest the alt right and the alt right, you know, decided not to have a protest because there wasn't anything to protest about James Damore anyways uh, fired for truth. Whatever, Uh, but yeah, like the lamest, like most halibut-looking son of a bitch. Well, like six guys showed up all black blocked out, and of course, the like dozen LAPD officers who were standing with us outside of Gold's Gym were like, "Well, what's up with these guys?" and cued on them immediately, and it it made it a more tense situation to the point where like some of us who were helping organize were called over to like potentially de-escalate, and then the kids were like, "Oh no, we're here for peace." It's like then don't dress like you're going to effing war, right? Well, I mean, the 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 thing about it is. There are different, you know, there are different circumstances for a protest. If you're going somewhere where you think there is going to be like a, a substantial risk of violence, then it makes sense to be prepared for a substantial risk of violence. Or if you're going in a situation where you think there's going to be a great likelihood of police brutality and repression, like an inauguration protest, then it makes sense to, to approach it that way. If you're going to the goddamn like women's march or something, you don't need to like you don't need to do that. You you have to think about what sort of situation you're going into and what sort of tactics are going to be appropriate. And uh, last one uh, before we wrap this one up, uh, we saw in the J20 trial that a lot of citizen journalist uh, footage that was captured during uh, the protest, and especially journalists who don't work for mainstream media outlets, like guys who work for Unicorn Riot and and uh, smaller groups, had their footage seized and then turned into state's evidence again. Uh, the defendants what can you tell me about what you can expect if you are going to citizen journalist it up or even if you're just capturing stuff for instagram for snapchat 
what what kind of ideas should I have in mind about main, about maintaining the privacy of the people around you, thinking about their safety, uh, all those sorts of issues. I mean, it it is important to think about. People have gone to jail because of those sort of things. A kid got ten years in, for a case out of Ferguson because he smashed up a police car and somebody took a picture of him and it was on the front page of the paper. So the cops went after his ass uh, specifically, and he went to prison over that because somebody took a picture. So people have to be uh, very considerate about what uh, what they're taking a photo of, what it shows, and what they're going to do with it. Like, it, it, this shouldn't be for your Instagram. You know, the cops have Instagram too. They, they know how to go through these things and look for you. Um, and, uh, and so, and so that is, that is a, that is a concern. And some people like don't, don't appreciate necessarily how dangerous, uh, that stuff can become. Obviously, if people are doing journalism, people have to do journalism, but there's also, and I, like Unicorn Riot knows what they're, knows what they're doing. They're not screwing around. They've got experience. Uh, but yeah, so when a couple of the Unicorn Riot guys got arrested in the kettle on J20, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, ABC had reporters who also got kettled, got arrested, and then got released as journalists, right. while not mainstream journalists were still taken into custody because even though they're journalists and press, the cops don't always care about that distinction. Well, one of the guys who was on trial recently was a freelance journalist uh, who was, you know, who was filming for freelance journalism purposes, who had been pitching his involvement in in his attendance in these protests to outlets as like, hey, I'm going to be here let me report on it and pay me, you know, in engaged in proper like journalism yeah. just without a big name behind him. And they he, were still charging him. He did get all of his charges dropped, though. They did. He was the seventh defendant, I think. And he got all of his charges waived and basically was was um, clear to then write about it. He wrote a, a medium blog post about his experience in the trial and it came out about yeah. a, a week before that. But even then. Up until the judge made the, you know, kind of fiat decision of, okay, we're throwing out your charges, he was facing the same felony charges for what should be protected speech. Right. And it would it should have been protected speech regardless of, you know, who was engaged in it, but particularly if somebody's a journalist. You know, they, they will target journalists. Yeah. They will seize footage. They will try to use that against people. And, you know, this is something that has come up, especially with some of the uh, BLM protests and things like that. Uh, there have been situations where there's been conflict between journalists and protesters. Because the journalists wanted to photograph and film, and the protesters didn't want to be photographed or on film. And so people have to be very conscious of what they are taking photos of and taking pictures of and why, because you can literally send somebody to prison with that stuff. Okay. So it's, so a lot of what I'm hearing about counter-protest is sort of the same stuff that we keep in mind for a lot of these, just sort of any time you have free speech actions or trying to demonstrate something, is you have rights under the law, but in these heightened situations— don't expect those rights to be protected as much, that there's bureaucracy and state security and stuff that enter into this, and that often just by you exercising your constitutional right to free speech you may find yourself on the wrong side of the police line. Right. You have to you have to anticipate that just because you have a right to something doesn't mean that it will be protected in the moment. Even if your rights are vindicated in court and you get a settlement or whatever, even if your charges are dropped or whatever— um, the fact that those are the remedies means that that doesn't necessarily uh, work out that way in the field, and the police understand that. So if you're engaged in, like, they will arrest illegally just to disrupt the protest. That's perfectly normal police tactics. So you have to anticipate that if you're doing something that uh, doesn't fall in line with or what uh, is considered acceptable, 
if you're engaged in something that's in some way disruptive, uh, they will come down on you. And even if you're in the right legally, morally, constitutionally, that doesn't necessarily protect you in the second. I, I, an example, I think, was when uh, when we were protesting at the airport because of the Muslim ban. We were uh, all there, you know, without any sort of permits or anything like that, and were fairly disruptive. Yes, to the state that, of, those were that was a big crowd. But the thing about the thing that was one of the things we were banking on was that there was no way that Eric Garcetti was going to let this get messy. And right after the inauguration, uh, there was no way that the L.A.'s city government was going to let a bunch of anti-Trump protesters get, like, violently arrested by the police, you know, protesting the Muslim ban. That would be an extremely bad look. You know, so uh, as a result, like, some things you saw at that protest are things that, like, you, I've never seen anywhere. There was the part towards the end where people were blocking the street. And they and negotiated with the police. The police said, okay, you can block the street for 15 minutes and then keep it clear for 15 minutes and block it for... Like, they were literally trading off um, in a way that... It's a way that barely... Like, it's, it's almost inconceivable. Like, I can't even imagine a situation like that popping up in some other sense. But when you're going into these things, you have to be thinking about who are you protesting? Who's the target? Um, what, what do you think the authorities would be willing to do to you? And that's why things like a Black Lives Matter protest, where the police are, in a certain way, the target of the protest, are always going to be more vulnerable or face higher risks. Whereas if you are doing something that um, aligns with the, you know, aligns with the narrative that the uh, people in your government want to maintain, uh, you can expect a greater degree of leeway. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. That, that all makes a lot of sense. All right. Thank you very much, Ace. We'll be back uh, in the next one to talk about uh, the impeachment march and rally that Ground Game helped throw with a coalition of other groups here. Uh, until next time, keep fighting.